Good morning. Will you guys turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we've been, as you guys know, going through uh, a series on the pastoral epistles. And Titus, in terms of how it falls in our Bibles, is the final uh, letter that we're going to read and study together. So we're coming towards the end of this series. But I'm going to read Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 for us. Pray again, and we'll get started. This is verse 1, the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elects, elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Will you pray with me one more time, please? And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're, we're making our way into Titus. And we're concluding this study on the pastoral epistles. And I think maybe this morning, because we're making a transition between uh, a recipient named Timothy, who we've been with for the last however long, to another person named Titus, I thought maybe it's worthwhile to kind of take a step back and just get kind of a foothold of where we're at in history. Just ask the question where, like historically speaking, what's the context of this letter? That can seem like a boring question to ask and an even boringer question to answer, but it can kind of reorient you in such a way that when you come to these verses, it makes sense in a way it wouldn't as if, um, rather than if you just came to it blind, unaware of the historical context. So maybe it is worthwhile just to spend a moment doing that. I think that probably Timothy, or Paul wrote this letter to Titus around the year 64 AD. Now that puts... Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, chronologically prior to Paul's two letters to Timothy. In other words, Paul wrote his letter to Titus before he wrote his letters to Timothy, very likely. And Paul is writing this letter to Titus, and he tells Titus, you're in Crete. I want you to stay in Crete, an island off the coast of Greece. Stay there. Establish this church. He tells them about the do's and don'ts of what it looks like to upstart a local representation of the body of Christ, what it looks like to plant a church. This is the things you do. This is what you don't do. This is the kind of doctrine you need to build into your people. And this is the kind of godliness that you should expect them to exhibit in their lives. And so Paul's saying to Titus, do those things and do them in Crete. But at the end of the letter, we learned that Paul says to Timothy or to Titus, I want you to come by winter and spend the winter with me in Nicopolis, which was a city kind of on the western shore of Greece. Now, if I'm right, and I, I didn't make this up, this I learned this from other people much smarter than me, that this was written in 64 AD, I do know that something significant happened. And Paul had to have written this letter early on in 64 AD because on the night, of July the 18th, in the year 64, something changed that was going to alter the world for the Christian church for decades to come. And that was Nero torched 
the city of Rome. He lit it on fire. By his orders, the city was set ablaze. And because it was summertime and the winds being the way they were, the fire was pushed out into the city and virtually 70 to 80% of the city burned. Now, Nero did this in a kind of sadistic and psychotic fit. But he did it, after he did it, Somebody needed to be blamed for it. He, of course, as the emperor of Rome, couldn't take the responsibility for that, so he blamed this brand new sect that was emerging out of Judaism called Christianity. He said that the Christian church, this new little sect, had started this fire, and that began one of the most harrowing and horrific persecutions the church literally has ever felt in history, the details of which discretion makes me not able to talk about in a setting like this. It was a horrible time. So when you read this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, you're getting something that's like a little blip on the radar. You're seeing this time just before a major change. And so Titus and Paul both are ignorant at this moment of the fact that all things were about to become different for them. After this, we really know very little about what happened to the Apostle Paul. His journeys and his travels, the things that we have so well documented in the book of Acts, that goes silent. We don't know very much at all about what he did. We know that in just a few years later, he was arrested in Asia, likely due to the betrayal of Alexander the coppersmith, which you read about last week in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then he was beheaded under Nero's authority in 67 AD. But the time in between those two periods we know very little about. Well, what's the point of that? What, why does it even matter and why is it worthwhile to even say all of that? Well, at least one reason is, and the only reason I'll give you this morning, is that I think it says something about where the headspace of the apostle is in this moment. See, in just a very few years, his life was going to be radically different. And you see that in 2 Timothy. He's predisposed with his, he's kind of pre, he's caught up in his own situation. He talks about himself a lot. And I don't mean that in any kind of a negative way. Just in the fact that he's thinking about what's going on with his own situation. And so in 2 Timothy, you get this beautiful, really intimate, personal portrayal of a letter written to a dying man to somebody that he loves. And that gives you intimacy galore, and it makes for a really astounding read. The letter that Paul wrote to Titus isn't like that. It doesn't have that urgency. And so you read this long sentence that we just read, all one sentence in the Greek, the first five verses. There's very little urgency there. And it's a carefully crafted theological statement. Paul has time to think about what the gospel is and to dot I's and cross T's. He has time to do that kind of thing. He also has time, I think, to do something that is really what I think is important about this passage, and that is to entrust to Timothy or to Titus a gospel that's going to be relevant in the island of, on the island of Crete. Crete was a place that had an illustrious religious history. They believed that Zeus, the god Zeus, was actually born in Crete, which is strange, and actually died in Crete, which is even stranger, and that he was buried there. 
And the Cretans believed that they actually, their people, the Cretan people, were actually the first people to inhabit the earth. That Cretans actually rose up from the ground. That the dust of the ground made the Cretans first before anyone else. So that illustrious history gave Cretans a very specific personal disposition. And it gave them a very specific set of values. They were really proud of all of those things that were true, all of those things being true about them. They were proud of their history. And that gave them a honor culture, what we call an honor culture, like a really traditional, old timey honor culture where Cretans valued and prized their honor and their status more than they did other things. That was the premier value for Cretans even to the point of where they prized honor and status over, like, truth and honesty. I know it's kind of hard to follow, so I'll try to illustrate it this way. Many of you are, of course, from the South, I presume. Some of you are, at least. And that's a happy coincidence for us this morning because, of course, the South is what we call a traditional honor culture, or at least it used to be. I don't know how much we could say this anymore. But what that typically meant, uh, you can illustrate this way. No matter what generation you are, think about your grandmother and pretend that your grandmother was in a Sunday school class. And the time came in that Sunday school class for prayer requests to be offered up. Okay? The teacher says, all right, I would like, you know, everybody, let's go around the room. Everybody share a prayer request. What would your grandmother answer that question with? Would she share the darker, seedier elements of your family with her Sunday school teacher and say, please pray for those things? Please pray for those things because, frankly, those are the things that my family is struggling with the most? Or would she preserve status and mention a medical ailment, a hip replacement or a knee or something? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Of course, it's the latter. And that's because we live in a society very similar to, or we, or our society at least was very similar to the society that Crete had. I said all of that, I say all of that just to make this sharp left-hand turn in a sermon and ask this rhetorical question. We're not going to go through every one of these verses this morning, but I do want you to notice in verse 2 a phrase that I frankly don't know of any other time that's said quite this way in the Bible. Do you see God described as somebody that never lies? I don't know of any other time that's said. And isn't that compelling? Because just ten verses later, Paul is going to describe the Cretans as people that are always liars. They always lie. Now, to us, that sounds like ethnocentrism, right? We read that and we say, that's racism. You can't generalize an entire culture and call them a slur. You can't say that the whole culture struggles with this one basic immorality. But that's what they thought about themselves, which is what Paul goes on to say. It's a prophet of their own that thought that. How amazing is it then that when Paul steps back, gives Timothy, Titus a greeting, a salutation, he describes God as one that never lies. And what does that say about the gospel? Did God lie to you so that he could spare 
his own honor? Or did God in Jesus Christ risk dishonor over and over again to tell you the truth? Didn't Jesus Christ despise the shame, forsake the honor that he could have had at his Father's right hand to break into a world and say, this world is not the place that it ought to be? It's exactly what he did. Titus was walking into a situation that was very much like ours, a world where hearing that you're a sinner or hearing that God is displeased with you, that the world can't satisfy you was deeply unpopular in the same way that it is for us to say those things in the same way it is for us to believe those kinds of things. But Paul is contextualizing a gospel to Crete. Now that doesn't mean that the gospel was going to creep into Crete unnoticed. It was going to be a bombshell on the playground of their former religion and upend values that were deeply entrenched. But it was going to do it for the sake of eradicating a lifestyle that built facades and images that were not real and build something that could finally give glory to Jesus Christ. Paul knew that their values were the opposite of the gospel and that those ideas and that way of life had to be shattered. Paul has something else in mind entirely. God never lies. He never, ever, ever lies. He never lied to them. He never lies to us. And he's promised eternal life through following Jesus Christ. The one who surrendered honor for the sake of God's people bore the shame that was certainly due us and bore it for their sake. I think we see over and over again in these letters in Paul's gospel um, that the gospel owes nothing to human wisdom. It has an alternative wisdom and an alternative honor code. So the Cretans, they were wild and debauched. They weren't what we would call godly people at all. And they thought that they could live that way by deceiving those outside their circles of truth. But God was calling Titus to see, teach something different entirely. He wanted Titus to present a competing story. I want to pause here and just take a step back and let that be sort of the cognitive section and then think about the way that we hear that statement that God never lies and think about how we can at times naturally respond to it. I know that sometimes basic statements like that can come to us and we can, they can sound hollow. You understand what I'm saying? We can hear them and they can just sound hollow. You can, maybe you're sitting out there and you're saying, I'm not sure that God is lying to me, but I feel like you're lying to me up there and none of this is true in my life and I don't see how it's relevant. Or maybe you hear those statements and you say, I've never heard God say anything. To me, how could I discern whether it was true or false? How could I know? I don't know that there's a God out there that I trust because he's never told me a lie. Uh, two weeks ago, we're two weeks, of course, on the far side of Easter. And on Easter, the church makes these startling and bold claims that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, though dead, rose from the grave and shattered forever the powers of sin and death. And that we now live in a world where those things are bound. They don't have the power over the world that they used to. But of course, sometimes the evidence for all of that can seem maybe bleak. I read an article 
this past week where the writer asked the question, where in hell is the evidence of Easter? And he didn't really mean that as a curse. He meant that as a precisely formed theological query. Where in this hellish world is the evidence of Easter? When just weeks ago, the group Al-Shabaab bursts into a dorm in Kenya and slaughters 146 students. When a German wings pilot flies a plane into the side of the Alps to the tune and chorus of screaming hundreds of people. When the bloodshed in Syria continues to mount to the extent that we avert our eyes. Where in hell is the evidence of Easter? It's a fair question, and I think maybe it's one that we shouldn't answer tritely or ignore. My dad uh, is, he teaches a um, course at the prisons on Broad River Road here in Columbia, and he teaches, uh, they, they have an associate's degree where you can, you can get an associate's degree in the Bible um, through this program, and my dad teaches one of the courses on uh, it's just a Christian spiritual formation course. And one of the things that they learn to do towards the end of the semester, he teaches this, of course, to the inmates. And one of the things that they learn to do is to tell their testimony. That's one of the last things they learn to do. This is how you communi- communicate your testimony. By testimony, we just mean the story of God's work in your life. This is how you communicate it to other people in a compelling way. Well, occasionally, when my dad does that, he asks my wife, Anna, to go and be there as the women at Camille share their testimony. And he asks Anna to play the role of the skeptic against these testimonies, which if you know Anna and you can see her in that context is a hysterical thought. But these women are women that are not, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't for women that are doing short-term stints in prison. It isn't for a five- to ten-year bid. This is for women that are spending the rest of their lives in prison, very likely. And so when they share their testimony, this is it can be a grotesque scene because the stories that they tell are incomprehensible to almost all of us. They're the kinds of stories that our psyches more or less bracket out because to understand them and follow them can be so deeply disturbing that we struggle at all to hear them. There's a very specific reason, though, that these women learn to share their testimonies. They have a purpose. It isn't just, you know, learn to share your testimony because that's a part of the Christian life. They have something that they are to do that no one else in the world can do. They are trained to share their testimonies for a reason. The warden couldn't do what they have to do with these testimonies. There's no correctional officer that they, they could do what these women do with their testimonies. No volunteer in this room could go and do what they have to do with their testimonies. And what they do is they go and they meet with women that they are called in that they call in transition, transitioning out of the outside world and into lengthier stints in prison. Now, the reason that nobody else can do this is because this is one of the most like psychological and existential difficult things our minds could ever go through. Go from living in one place to knowing you're going to spend the rest of your life in another place. And so when you meet these women, it's not an easy moment. And so the inmates that serve to tell their testimony always say, I don't really 
I don't want to go. I never beforehand want to do it. I always dread it because you go in and it's just a terrible time in these people's lives. And it's just, even for me, it's painful, so painful. So one woman told Anna the story of doing this very recently. She went in to a room and saw a woman that was undone by the reality that she was about to be in prison for much of the rest of her life, and furious. And so the woman went, and she said, Can I talk to you? And the girl said, No, absolutely not. You can't talk to me. Leave me alone. She said, Okay, well, can I, can I pray for you? And the woman said, No, you can't pray for me. And so the last ditch effort that this woman could think of that might actually do something in this terrible situation is the woman just said, can I sing for you? And the woman responded, I don't know, because music has always been so special to me, and that seems like something that might not be reaching me very often anymore. For you to sing to me may just be way too much. But yes, you can sing for me. And so she sang for her. And she sang her the story of a God that never lies, a God that keeps his covenant forever, that has never been unfaithful to his people. And she sang it in the midst of a broken and fragmented place to the heart of a woman that was deeply ruptured and wounded. And of course, as Augustine says, Singing is actually praying twice. And so the double dose and torrent of God's grace in His covenant worked on that woman to the point where she wept. And she gave her life to the Lord. Where in hell is the evidence of Easter? The writer asked. You remember. And really he goes on to say it's a perfect question. And the question answers itself. Because like Crete... Like Paul knew about Titus and Crete, any God can set up a throne amidst a dishonest people through dishonesty. Any God can set up a throne in a mere temple. Only one God can set up a throne in the midst of shame and dishonor. The true God has to set up up His throne in this hellish world and reign here, or He doesn't reign at all. The triumph of Jesus Christ on this side of the new heavens and the new earth happens there. The evidence of His victory has to happen there, where families that have been deeply broken are knit together, where addictions are severed from the hearts of people that have held them, when love is birthed in our lives instead of resentment and anger and bitterness. It'll happen when churches are built amidst voices that mock. And it will happen when Jesus' name is honored on all of our lips until our dying breath. God hasn't been silent, and He's never lied to you. He's never lied. He holds out the promise of eternal life for everyone, and He's given you a common faith. Let's pray together. Father, we love You, and we're so grateful for Your work and Your goodness. And we thank You for the truth that You've never lied to us. We want to believe that. We want you to be a God that's trusted. If we can trust you, then the scriptures open up a well of comfort and they open up a well of vision where we can see a world that you reign. But if we don't trust you, if we doubt you, the scriptures become darkly silent 
And none of us want that to happen. So will you fill us with your spirit and will you give us grace? In your name we pray. Amen.